0: In November of 2009, NPR ran a story about a young woman named Maya Shankar. Maya Shankar was an incredibly talented violinist, and her talent was matched with an equally prodigious work ethic and ability to concentrate for long periods of time. Her talent and her hard work, five to seven hours of practice every day, led her to the doorstep of one of the most famous violin teachers of our day, Ishtak Perlman. At 17 years old, it was a dream come true. Every hour of practice, every ounce of determination, every hope and dream that Maya's relatively short life had led her to, this moment, this opportunity to practice and to to learn from the master. Her path seemed to be laid right in front of her. Already a fine violinist in her own right, under the personal instruction of Perlman, Maya Shankar was destined to be excellent, maybe even a famous concert violinist. But later that year, she suffered a debilitating hand injury. And after seeing multiple specialists, her doctors told her that she would have to stop playing violin forever. At the age of 17, Her whole life as a violinist before her, Maya Shankar, was suddenly faced with an identity crisis. If I'm no longer a violinist, she said to herself, then what am I? Then who am I? It was a shocking new reality, and Maya struggled to find herself amidst great disorientation. Our story this evening in the Scriptures includes an encounter of a crisis of identity a group from a synagogue in jerusalem are confronted by the teaching of the gospel through a christian man named stephen as we work through the story i have three goals first i want to offer us some historical context that is going to help us make sense of the story so that when you read it on your your own the next time you read through acts Uh, you'll have a bit more cultural insight and background into the meaning of the text. Second, I want to suggest that the gospel, the good news, while being good news for everybody, is also hard news for everybody. The gospel will challenge our identity and will lead us to a crisis if we listen to it, not unlike what Maya Shankar experienced. And third, I want to proclaim what I believe the text proclaims, and that is, as unsettling as the gospel is to our false identities, Jesus is the only one who can really show us who we are and who we were meant to be. So if you're interested in truth, if you're interested in some wholeness inside, stick with me through the first two points, and we'll get to the payoff, because I think there's good news in this. Would you please stand with me as we read the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. The word of God kept on spreading, and a number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. While they were secretly induced men to say, we have heard him say blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put, him, uh, put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all were sitting in the council and they saw his face shining like that of an angel. Lord, thank you for this story that on the surface might seem mundane or like just a history lesson. But I thank you, living God, that you continue to speak through us or to us through, the, through your word. And, and Holy Spirit, I, I pray for your help in opening up this word for us. That it wouldn't just inform us more about what your church went through, but that it would walk us through an experience of knowing our true identity. Amen. You may be seated. If you're just uh, joining us in the series on Acts, maybe uh, recently, maybe you missed last week, or maybe you just forgot. I won't hold that against you. Uh, last week we focused on Acts six one through seven, and we saw in that passage two realities. One. God is causing the church to grow as the apostles continued teaching and preaching. And it was almost as if the more persecution they suffered, the more God caused them to grow. And we've seen this all throughout scripture, haven't we? In uh, in, in Exodus, for example, the more Pharaoh pushes and turns the screws, the more the Israelites multiply. And and here we see a similar thing with the church. So that's the first reality. The church is growing because God is growing the church. Second, the church grew, as it grew in numbers, it also grew in diversity. And this growth in diversity caused some internal strife as a clashing of customs and cultures and languages was bound to take place. In that passage we looked at last week, we saw uh, uh, two, um, two groups that were coming to a head together. One was the native Hebrews who had been Jews living in Judea, that is the Jerusalem area and, and that area of, of Israel. Uh, and, and then another group called the Hellenized folks, and, and they, uh, they were from the diaspora or outside of Jerusalem. And uh, these were also Jewish people um, who began following Jesus, but instead of being from Judea, they come from parts of the Roman Empire like, um, you know, like Turkey and and Greece and Alexandria, and and instead of Hebrew and Aramaic being their their primary language, Greek was their primary language, okay? And a conflict arose between these two groups, these native Hebrews and these Hellenized people and the conflict was centered around their widows and it seemed to the group that the Hebrew widows were being better cared for than the Greek Hellenized widows were. And so the church calls a congregational meeting and they put forward seven men who were well respected in the community and who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And these seven men happened to be from a Hellenized immigrant group. They had Greek names, they had Greek cultural backgrounds, and that made them uniquely positioned to help make sure that the Greek Hellenized widows were well cared for. Now, these seven men weren't just called upon to serve widows, as important as that task would be. They were also involved in the ministry of the Word, and they were men full of faith. And the Lord was working through them, and in the story tonight that we're looking at, we learn that Stephen, a good Greek-named man, uh, was one of the seven, and he was able to perform signs and wonders as the Lord was giving him ability. Now, we're six chapters into the book of Acts, and you can probably anticipate what's going to happen next. Things are going well for the Jesus movement in this moment, and so that means persecution is about to come. In this case, there's a group of people from this place called the Synagogue of Freedmen, and they rise up and they argue with Stephen in the public square. Now, before we go much further, your eyes may have just glazed over, uh, let's take a look look at these terms that I just spouted out at you, the, the synagogue of the freedmen, like what on earth is that? Right, first of all, just, just a review, for those of you who already know, but like just a review, like what is a synagogue? Um, the word literally means an assembly or a gathering of people. Just as the church is a people, not a building, uh, so a synagogue is a gathering of, of Jewish people together, um, not necessarily a place or a location or a building. Israelites in Jerusalem worshiped at the temple, but for centuries Israel had, had been the center of all kinds of conflicts, hadn't they? And Israel had risen and fallen so many times it gets confusing. They had fallen at the hands of the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and the Persians, and the Greeks, and the Romans. And each time persecution came, people were dragged off as captives to foreign lands, or when the going got tough, they they escaped. Like today, we see people escaping war-torn countries who are emigrating from their country and are immigrating to new countries, right? To get get their family to safety. And these emigrations, whether they were forced off by a a foreign army or they left to find safety, these emigrations, these leaving of, of Israel meant that these Jewish families settled in other countries around the empire. And we call that the Diaspora. The Diaspora Jews might find themselves in places like Alexandria, Egypt, or Corinth in Greece, or Philippi in Turkey, or Antioch in Syria, and they would have to reckon with how to still be Jewish In a pagan land where things like kosher weren't followed and there was no temple and there's nobody speaking Hebrew, how do you do it? How do you be Jewish in these other places? And so what they did was they gathered into synagogues, neighborhood synagogues and city synagogues, and they gathered together to read the scriptures in the Hebrew. So even though through the generations these um, diaspora Jews would learn Greek as their primary language, their worship language, they would read the scriptures often and pray the prayers in Hebrew and Aramaic. And that's what a synagogue is. It started in the diaspora movement. A place to practice their Jewishness, their faith, and to pass that down to the generations. Now, As Jerusalem grew more diverse and more populated, synagogues also rose up in Jerusalem, even though the temple's still there. These synagogues didn't replace the temple, but they offered groups or associations of people with similar backgrounds and cultures and languages an opportunity to have fellowship in their own mother tongue. So Jewish diaspora immigrants from Alexandria, for example, might prefer to speak Greek and study the scriptures in Greek they might form a synagogue for regular worship right in jerusalem but then they would still go to temple for to make their sacrifices and and national worship okay so that's what synagogues are in a nutshell now what are the freedmen in the roman system a slave could be and often were manumitted that means freed from slavery and given an upgraded status right so sometimes slaves were allowed to buy their freedom slaves could earn money in the ancient world sometimes Uh, sometimes slaves were given freedom when they reached the end of their serviceable life so if they were a manual laborer and they get to their age you know where they're starting to creak and, and a master would actually for financial reasons manumit that slave because it costs more to feed them and care for their medical attention than just get a new younger slave Another time, slaves were maybe manumitted or freed, uh, either in the will of a dead master or for good behavior. It just depended. There's lots of different uh, ways that slaves could be freed. Now, if a slave belonged to a Roman citizen, it was possible for a slave to be freed and with the blessing of their master, they could become a Roman citizen. And if that slave who was freed and became a Roman citizen had children, those children would automatically be Roman citizens. And so, for example, it's likely believed that Paul, the apostle, who's from Tarsus, had a parent or a grandparent who was a freedman, who was a, at one time a slave, became a Roman citizen once they got freed, and then Paul was born a Roman citizen. Interesting. Okay. We're almost there we've got synagogues and we've got freedmen now in the ancient world associations or clubs were really common so like in our culture think today like the elks club or you've got the rotary club or or maybe you're, you're familiar with labor unions right you've got the pipe fitters or the aeronautical engineers unions and these associations bring people of like interest together as a fellowship designed for community and for furthering their cause or the rights of that group in society and what's really interesting is there's lots of writings ancient ancient writings about this group of the freedmen the freedmen actually had an official association recognized by the roman empire so in any settlement in any city in any community you could find a local hall where you would have the association of freedmen and they would gather on a regular basis and talk about their issues now what we see in act six here's why i'm telling you all this is a synagogue of freedmen, which means two things. This synagogue in Jerusalem was made up of ex-Roman slaves, which automatically means that they were not originally from Judea. And this was a synagogue of Hellenized Jewish immigrants from the diaspora. Like Stephen, they were originally Greek speakers, and they had come to settle in Jerusalem the spiritual homeland of their faith. It is possible that Stephen knew some of these freedmen, since he came from a Hellenized background himself. We don't, we don't really know for sure. What we do know is that a group of the synagogue of the freedmen came out to challenge him, and they did it publicly. Now, We've talked about this cultural thing of honor and shame quite a bit, but let me just remind you that if somebody was to challenge someone in an argument or a debate publicly, it meant more, like the stakes were just like, not are you right or wrong, okay, let's all be friends. The stakes were always higher. If you had an argument or a debate in public, the only outcome would be that the winner of that debate, according to public opinion, would increase their honor And the loser and their family and everyone with their name would decrease or they would be shamed. In their dismay, the scriptures tell us that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And immediately we think of Jesus promising his disciples, uh, don't fear persecution for the spirit will give you the words to speak. Or we might think of Acts chapter 4, where the apostles had been persecuted, and then what do they do? As soon as they get out of jail, they pray that God would make them bold in proclaiming the gospel. Clearly, God is uh, at work in Stephen. That's why Luke is telling us this. We're to see Stephen as someone whom God is favoring and blessing. But even though Stephen is presented as wise and righteous, his opposition becomes angry. They've now just been shamed publicly. They thought they were going to get Stephen, and now they've been shamed. And so what do they do? They secretly induce false witnesses to say this. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And then they got more crowds involved and violently dragged Stephen out of the public setting and into the potential of a criminal hearing before the Sanhedrin. That's the official Jewish law court. One minute Stephen is just preaching the good news of the scriptures and, uh, and the next minute he's dragged before the court with false witnesses twisting his words so that he's to look as though he's preaching blasphemy which carries the death sentence. This is, this is big stuff. Now, the ironic thing is that according to the scriptures, both in Deuteronomy and in extra biblical literature, false, being a false witness was a huge offense. And technically, a false witness, if they were found to be a false witness, were to receive the same punishment as the person who is under trial. So in a criminal case, a capital case, a false witness could be stoned to death. What would cause these people who obviously, like, give them every benefit of the doubt, they obviously care about God's honor and about the Jewish law and the Jewish way of life. What would cause them to undermine their very scriptures, their very ethical code? What had Stephen done that was so horrible? Why well, suggest that Stephen is on trial because of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus put the identities of the synagogue of the freedmen on trial. And here's what I mean by that. In six Acts, Acts 6, 1 through 7, diaspora Jews and homeland Jews become one when they start following Jesus. While their cultural background and their languages and differences are real, We're not talking about, oh, they followed Jesus and now everybody's colorblind. Like, that's not how this is. Their differences are very real. But they learned that they are new people. They're no longer Hellenized or they're no longer Hebrew. They are in Christ together. Being in Christ does not erase our culture or our gender or our ethnicity. It just makes them a beautiful part of our primary identity, image bearers of God, redeemed in Christ, and dignified with mission. That's who we are in Christ. Now, in a stark contrast are those who strive to find their identity in anything else but Jesus. In this story, the diaspora Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen, these are people, I just want you to imagine what this would be like. These are people who had lived in pagan hellenized land and they're trying hard to be jewish they've had to fight for their faith they've had to fight for their identity they've had to fight for their minority way of life if you just look at history look how jewish people have been persecuted time and time again as the minority other person right and they've got A choice as they live in the diaspora. The first choice, this is very like black and white binary. Of course, they have other choices, but I'm preaching and I just want to give two things, right? So, (laughs) They either, in general, leave their Jewishness, right? And just blend in because sometimes that just might be easier. Take Greek names and just, hey, let's be Corinthian or let's be Athenian or let's be Alexandrian. You can do that. Or what we often see with almost all immigrant groups is that we double down. When you are the other, you often find that you double down on your otherness. Immigrant groups are more into their national and ethnic customs than those who remain in their homeland, right? So diaspora Jews were sometimes known to make their identity about adherence to the law or about devotion to the temple, um, et cetera. Et cetera and part of the longing that existed in the hearts of many diaspora Jews and we we see this in journals and what's called ostraca which are these broken shards of pottery it's what we we have scratch paper right people use broken pottery as their scratch paper it's called ostraca and we see poems and longings of the heart to go back and to see the temple with their own eyes right there's a, there's a longing for the homeland a devotion to the homeland almost a romanticism about the homeland and if you have ever moved away, maybe you went somewhere else to university or for a while your career took you away, or maybe now you do, this isn't your home, right? You're from another state or place or country. Doesn't the heart kind of grow fonder and longer? And sometimes we, we remember where we're from with rose-colored glasses until we actually revisited it again, and it's, uh, it's actually kind of a pit. Uh, so even to this day, though, there are scholarship programs that, that people with like, just very minimal Uh, Israeli blood in their bloodstream can get uh, either free ride or greatly reduced opportunities to go back for a visit to the Holy Land and to go see these places. So here you have diaspora Jews who are extremely zealous for their homeland, who have their identity wrapped up in following their traditional laws and customs, and they encounter a man named Stephen, who at one time was also from the diaspora, And he's now preaching that Jesus, this Nazarene guy, is the fulfillment of their ancient promises and that this Jesus way is the truth and the life. That Jesus is somehow the incarnate God of the universe and that through Jesus, not the temple, not the customs, not the tradition, through Jesus we come into the family of God. Uh Uh-uh, they're not having it. They, they they've staked their whole life on defending this other thing, making their identity about their Jewishness. Now, if you're an objective observer from our vantage point, we might think, hey, this is actually really great. Like, here are these people who love God and love the scriptures and they love the law. And here's a man who says Jesus of Nazareth has fulfilled all these things and he's the Savior. What great news! Like, just get on board. And they like it is great news. Unless your identity is wrapped up in something different for many of the people um, Jesus and the early church encountered their identity was in their Jewishness and their nationality and their adherence to laws and customs that set them apart as being not from other countries but being Jewish And when Stephen came presenting a message of hope that placed emphasis on a relationship with Jesus over and above adherence to customs or to nationalism, it rattled the identities of the people who were listening. Note that Stephen and the early church weren't saying there was something wrong with the temple. In fact, they were still worshiping there as Christians. All they were saying is, hey, we no longer need to make sacrifices in the temple anymore because Christ is our once and for all Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the shift in identity for the synagogue of the freedmen was too costly. Robert Mulholland Jr. writes about how many of us misplace our identity by taking on a false self. And it's not like we're always trying to fool people with how we present, but the false self becomes a coping mechanism that protects our true self from being damaged. And we build, this up, we build an identity around external things. But because every single human being is inherently spiritual, we often build up a religious false self. We find our identity in doing or saying the right religious things because deep down we think that might get us a little bit closer to God. We might make others happy along the way too. So some people focus on the vice lists, right? Like we see in the Bible uh, about what not to do with your life. So we don't do certain things, right? We're religious. We don't lie. We don't steal. We don't stray sexually. Uh, We don't get divorced, right? Right? Of course, it happens all the time. Uh, but, but life is not meant to be a list of what we don't do. Now, not that I would suggest living a life of sin on purpose, but making not doing certain things your life, your identity, that's not much of a life. And then other people might focus on doing on doing certain things. So religious group attendance or, or religious study or observing special customs. Again, doing God stuff as a way to define yourself rather than living for god it's not the life you and i were made for so neither abstinence from practicing taboos or intentional participation in religious customs by themselves will get us closer to god and every single one of us when you think about it struggles with a false self i mean they start quickly in childhood man you might have been like good at sports or a good musician or some other performance oriented thing and, and maybe you were praised for your performance and so you learned to be a performer in life and maybe you think deep down like you wouldn't admit this to anyone because it sounds crazy but deep down the way that you live you live as though God may only like you if you're succeeding or getting the job done or doing it better than the person next to you what the gospel is saying to us is that's not who you are. That's a false self. That's not who you were made to be. And there's all all kinds of, uh, of things. And maybe you were exceptionally smart or had trouble academically. Either one of those poles, right? You, you learned your role as a smart kid or you learned your role as a mediocre kid. And the identity shaped how you see yourself, how you might believe that God sees you. But that's not who you are. We, we build this false self and try and find our identity in all kinds of things other than Jesus. And we do this with our place in society, right? Uh, we're wealthy, we're poor, we're middle class, American, Egyptian, Brazilian, all very real designations. Those are real things, but that's not who you are. And we do this with sexuality and gender, male, female, gay, straight, trans. Again, very real experiences, very real orientations, very real perspectives for each person. But not inherently who we are. We are more than sex and we're more than gender. And we do this with almost anything we can grab onto our physical appearance or our career or fanaticism as sports fans or music groupies. Like those dudes at the Seahawk game, like Mama and Papa Blue, like I wonder what else their life is about. Like that is a lot of identity wrapped up in being a Hawks fan. Go Hawks. The gospel of Jesus, what I'm saying is, will put all of our false identities on trial. And it, 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 the gospel will not encourage an identity rooted in a person's performance or rooted in a person's success or wallowing in self-hatred or self-pity or misery the gospel of Jesus will make you question is your identity big enough to handle all that God wants to do in and through you is your identity spacious enough to receive the demands of God in your life for holiness and thriving it's got to be big Is your identity sustainable, or does it require life-exhausting attention and maintenance to keep it propped up under the weight of expectations? I'm saying that one again because I'm preaching to me. Uh, Is your identity sustainable, or does it require life-exhausting attention and maintenance to keep it propped up under the weight of expectations? Maya Shankar, the violinist, confessed that when she injured her hand, and she realized she had built up a false identity on being a great violinist. Once the violin was taking, taken from her, she felt as though her identity were very much, was very much on trial. The doctors and her pain, that was the prosecution condemning herself as a failed project. And she struggled with that for a while. And then something happened. Maya Shankar adapted And she saw that she was given other talents that made her a great violinist, like the talent of concentration and the talent of intellect. And she applied those talents that helped her become a violinist, and she applied them toward getting a PhD that would help her work for justice and equity in the social science realm. That's a really fun story. Look up that name later on, because it turns out that she just played a concert recently, that she picked up a violin after seven years. I don't know, it was longer than that. And, um, and her hand worked well enough and all of that training, she was good enough to play in this concert. So anyway, it's she really a cool story. As unsettling as the gospel is to our false selves, Jesus alone offers us true peace when we trust him, trust him to tell us who we are. In the final scene, Stephen is described as shining like an angel. And at the end of the story, something we will have to wait uh, until January to get to because we're taking a break from Acts for a while, but at the end of the story, he will be stoned to death, you know, and his final words will be to ask for forgiveness for his false accusers who condemned him to death on trumped-up charges. And it's, it's hard, right, to, to, to miss the connection in this story and the trial of Jesus, who goes to the cross after false witnesses uh, mock him and, and uh, uh, after he endures a false trial that condemns him to death. And, and the thing about Jesus is that he's sure in that moment of that whole scene, he's sure of whose he is. He's from the Father and he's going back to the Father. And so even though he has opportunity to plead his case, he doesn't feel the need to do that. And Stephen who could have self-identified as a Hellenized Jewish immigrant, a deacon in the church, a man who God uses to perform signs and wonders, a great preacher, a faithful servant of Jesus, a leader in the church. Stephen, who could have identified as all of those things, um, instead finds his identity in Jesus and is at peace just like Jesus was in a similar scenario. Stephen comes to understand that he's the beloved of Jesus. He is the one who, with all his sin and history and humanness and uniqueness, finds his identity as the beloved of Jesus, as the one who is loved so much that Jesus would die for him and send his spirit to dwell in him. And brothers and sisters, the point of the message is that through faith in Jesus, that's our identity as well. That's our identity. And this Christian journey, you know, we can think about it in lots of different metaphorical ways, but it is at least a growing into this identity of, uh, as being God's beloved and an undoing over time and with much effort and spiritual friendship and sometimes deep counseling An undoing of our false selves. That's the journey. And it's uncomfortable and it's glorious and it's real. You pray with me. Lord, thank you for the story that on the surface um, looks a bit like a history lesson, looks a bit more like a hinge to get us from one exciting story to another exciting story. And it's just like you to have contained within it, uh, like a Trojan horse, this amazing uh, disruptor of our lives in a good way. I pray in your gracious tenacity that you would uncover in us Lord um, where we're relying on our false selves would you show us Lord where we're exhausting ourselves trying to live up to expectations that may not even be yours and I pray that you would give each each man woman and child vision for the life that you've called us to uniquely live as we discover that we, even we, are your beloved, that that even we are worthy um, of your death and resurrection, of your incarnation, of you coming to rescue. Thank you for this good news tonight, Lord. Amen.